I'm really, really well. Interested that of all the possible football stories, once again, we are locked in a, will a guy sign a £400,000 a week contract or not? Every, every single year. I know, it's totally fine. It's just up this the way modern football is, unfortunately. For the hope of celebrating Billy Bingham's 90th today at a time when um, £350,000 transfer was a big deal. <laughs> that seems like a long, long time ago. It's, well, hopefully it will revert to the mean. When I saw that Christian Cabaselli, the Watford defender, was worth £18 million on Football Manager, I said, no, he isn't, and logged off. But that's... The, the operating word there is worth £80 because clearly he isn't worth that much. That's oh, just the asking price. Not even one eight. Um, but yes, you mentioned Billy Bingham, David Prentice. Yeah. We had to promote your paperback version of your book, A Grand Old Team 2 Report. Uh, which yeah. came out, although as we speak, it's next week, but this won't go out until the weekend of the 23rd of October. Do you know who Everton are playing that weekend? 23rd of October. Oh, gosh, I've not looked that far ahead. No, go on. I'll give Surprise you a clue. Me. Andy Gray knocked the ball out of Steve Sherwood's hands and scored an illegal <laughs> goal. No, no, it was perfectly legal. It was a you know a robust challenge. He headed the back of his hands. Steve Sherwood entirely a false referee got it absolutely spot on. <laughs> Where is that? Is that a Goodison or is it down? Uh, we'll down we'll agree to disagree that I think it's at Goodison, uh, as far as I know. Right, but so we, Watford did really well a couple of seasons ago when we went up in 2015. Um, I've got yeah. a cartoon up here of Odie Nigalo bamboozling John Stones uh, and yeah, shooting past yeah. England's number one. Jordan Pickford, yeah. I think, was in yeah. goal that day. Um, one, one of my favourite Watford games was the way it was at the, the 3-2 game where Leighton Baines scored like a 97th minute penalty, I think it yep. was, in the, uh, in the David Unsworth, very, very brief David Unsworth caretaker management reign. As far uh, as I can it, remember, Tom Cleverley missed a penalty before then. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. That was some match, that one. Absolutely. Mm. And big up for David Unsworth because he had a, an impossible job uh, because this was in yeah. the... I spoke to a Cardiff City fan and they spent most of the 2010s uh, yo-yoing irascibly through the divisions. Everton famously have not been relegated in the Premier League era. You're one of the Super Six, but not the Big yeah. Six, but one of the Big Five. So how do you justify the fact that you were instrumental, or rather the late Philip Carter, whom you may know very personally, yeah, yeah. he was instrumental in getting the Premier League started, and yet Everton were locked out of the recent negotiations of the, are you having a laugh, Super League? Correct, yeah. yeah it's been, uh, the Premier League era has been very, very frustrating for Everton, should we politely say. Just at a time when you know, the club should have been absolutely building on what they you know, sort of achieved in the 80s, as Manchester United did, as Arsenal did. You know, so Everton fell by the wayside. And you have to look at the, uh, the powers that be that were in the club back then. Uh, Sir Philip Carter, David Marsh was a chairman briefly at that time as well. And um, decisions were made which weren't for the good of the football club, you know, a club that had been worth, you know, millions. I mean, in my lifetime, I remember Everton being known as the Mersey Millionaires. And it got to a stage whereby, you know, so Howard Candle was basically hamstrung, certainly in his uh, second coming as Everton manager, to who he could, you know, who he could buy. So, no, very, very frustrating. I mean, there was opportunity, I thought in the, uh, the mid-90s to maybe get back, you know, sort of uh, something approaching what Everton had achieved and that bizarre decision by Peter Johnson to mutually consent Joe Royal, uh, which features quite significantly in my book. I think that damaged Everton. 
so yeah, just bad decision making. Uh, so frequently throughout the Premier League era, unfortunately, uh, placed Everton in a position whereby you can say that we're one of the top six in terms of stature and in terms of history and in terms of you know sort of historical achievements. But currently, no, sadly not. You know, so we probably lag a, a little way behind. No, you're in kind of the best of the rest alongside. Well, Arsenal finished eighth last season, but alongside Leicester, yeah. Southampton, if they replace Danny Ings, um, yeah. Newcastle, because the great news today is that uh, Mike Ashley is leaving it to the man marrying his daughter. What first attracted you to the daughter of the millionaire, Mike Ashley? We'll ask the future Newcastle owners. Um, and then hopefully Watford, because we've got this great scouting network that ends up selling players onto Everton. One of the bright sparks yeah. of Everton uh, is Richarlison, who's currently, as we speak, lighting up Tokyo with his scoreability. Yeah. And I think he didn't he score? He scored against uh, Swansea. He may well have scored against, if not made his debut against Everton. But was Everton one of those glorious 12 games that Marco Silva managed Watford in before he wanted to move to Everton? <laughs> I think he could well have been, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, Richarlison's been, uh, you know, so about a breath of fresh air, you know. We were mocked roundly uh, for the amount of money that we actually paid uh, for Richarlison at the time. But I think uh, what he's done subsequently, and like you say, what he's doing currently out in Tokyo, indicates that that was very, very good business. And he's clearly worth an awful lot more than that now. Uh, Abdelaziz Akure, again, was another who's uh, you know been absolutely in- integral, really, uh, to everything that Everson have done over the last year or so, and will be hopefully going forward. Yeah. So, yeah, Watford have been you know, so quite decent. And, and what, what have you had in return? Tom Cleverly, is it, or you know, have <laughs> yeah. you, you, you taken back from us? Yeah. Um, I, I think we should we should borrow a fullback. I know you're Holgate, Mason Holgate. We could have him if he's offering. But um, yeah. this is a very interesting time for Everton. Obviously, this will go out in the middle of October. I do hope that idiots don't put the raffer out banners because this is the best manager. If you're going to have a football nerd who gets results. Yeah. It's going to be Mr. Benitez. Now, you are, um, you know this, the listener might not, the sport editor of the Liverpool Echo. How difficult is it currently to write about the Everton manager knowing that he was the Liverpool manager for several years? Personally, I don't find it difficult at all because uh, I have actually advocated uh, Rafa Benitez becoming Everton manager several times in the past, uh, 2013. Uh, I don't think I'm being wise after the event here, but when uh, you know, Roberto Martinez was touted as Everton manager, I was sceptical, largely based on uh, the number of goals that his Wigan Athletic team shipped. Yes, I know what he did in the FA Cup in 2013, and I know, you know how he tactically outwitted you know, Manchester City to win the Cup. But this is a team that you know, was relegated, it conceded goals at an alarming rate. I was nervous about the prospect of him coming in. I was proved spectacularly wrong in that first season when Emerson finished fifth and looked you know, wonderful in many games. Although you could argue that that was based on you know, the David Moore's defence that he inherited uh, and obviously the, the genius of bringing Romelu Lukaku in mm-hmm. and uh, Gareth Barry and James McCarthy, all great signings. Uh, but I was still wary and it turned out that you know it wasn't such a great move in the other seasons that you know subsequently followed I actually suggested Rafa Benitez would be a better option uh, clearly the powers that be at Everson disagreed significantly and made me aware of that and then again in 2015 when Ronald Koeman was approached I thought Rafa would be a good choice again and again it didn't happen and I was also led to believe that Rafa would have been open to the idea of coming to Everson then obviously a lot of water has gone under the bridge since then and I'm not so sure 
So now would have been the optimum time uh, to bring Rafa Benitez in, especially given the financial restrictions you have to work with, given financial fair play. But I still like him a lot as a coach and as a manager. And if you know Evertonians can get over the fact that you know he once made a couple of disparaging comments about um, Everton, which he was a Liverpool manager, of course he was going to do that. Uh, I think he could be good for the football club. Whether he'd be allowed to do that, you know, whether the fans are allowed to do that, we'll have to wait and see. Well, he is local, and I love the fact that he maintained his house, even though he was managing in China. He, I guess he still yeah. paid his taxes on his home in Liverpool. And I've read Tony Evans's book, Two Tribes. You're a, a, yeah. a city separated by a park, not by anything else. And um, yeah. we saw in 1989 as well, especially, um, the justice for the 97, as it is, and... Yeah. Uh, Every every year, every April, I've been to two of the Hillsborough Memorial Games. The city is united by two things, the football and hatred of the sun. So it's very lucky that yeah. your readership um, go to the Liverpool Echo uh, rather than anywhere yeah. else. Do you reckon you are the most read paper in the city for in terms of football news? Yeah, 100%, and we can actually uh, quantify that as well, because... Uh, if you look at the, the print circulation figures uh, for the Liverpool Echo nowadays, uh, they've dwindled alarmingly. But that's just newspapers generally, you know, so across the uh, across the world. When I started at the Echo way back in uh, the late 1980s, uh, we were shifting over 200,000 copies a day uh, when we had four or five editions every single day. Mm. I think the last time we shifted that many copies was when uh, Liverpool won the Champions League in 2005. 200,000 copies a day, how many people read the paper? We used to calculate two or three people would read each you know, paper, so you're looking at you know, three quarters of a million. Nowadays, in fact, yesterday, uh, 1.4 million people read sports stories alone uh, on the Liverpool Echo website. If you want to add in news stories and features as well, uh, that figure rises to over three and a half million. Now, obviously, they're not all scousers, you know, so people around the world are reading those stories, but we are being read more now than we have ever been in our title's history. It's just digested in a very different format now. Uh, it's digested online. People read it on their mobile phones, on their you know, sort of laptops, rather than physically going out and buying a newspaper. So, yes, I can comfortably say that we are, you know, are comfortably read more than any other platform, any other title around the world. And you know, that other title that I won't even mention uh, just isn't even sold in many places. I'm I was, you know... I actually, I went into a newsagent's by Anfield, didn't see it. I went, oh, yeah, cool. It's true. Yeah. So it's true up here. They don't print it. it Absolutely. We don't even use the name around here. We just ignore it. Yeah, which you have to. It was strange that a couple of the England footballers have used that newspaper for exclusives, but I guess they've got a deal with their agents, we must presume. But, yeah, the Liverpool Echo is the best newspaper yeah, I, I think a lot of that being you know, some modern footballers, you know, we're, we're talking about a tragedy which happens, you know, more than 30 years ago now. So, you know, yeah. maybe they're not as aware as they ought to be. Uh, unfortunately, I, I lived and reported through that era. So I remember it very, very acutely. And uh, we feel it's our duty to basically educate people. People around here don't need educating, to be honest, because they, they know, they, they hear all the time about the grave, you know, sort of injustice that was inflicted. Uh, not just on the families uh, and the victims, mm. but as a city as a whole, whose entire reputation was introduced you know, so, uh, during that era. A horrible time, and, it, and it's still ongoing. The fight for justice still still endures. Uh, yes, even though the official case is now at rest, there is still yeah. there are still. Ind- I guess they can take individually. 
um, they can... Accountability. Yeah, we yeah. want people to be made accountable for the decisions they took on that day, which cost lives. And uh, unfortunately, that hasn't happened and doesn't look like it's well, ever going to happen. Correct. And I, mean the fight. I've been saying for the last year, Orgreave, Hillsborough... We haven't even got a Grenfell justice yet. That'll take ages. The Iraq war inquiry, which was a whitewash, that was set up five years after the war. I don't think anyone's going to take responsibility for what's going on in COVID. How difficult has it been to produce a sports section in the last 18 months, especially last May, when the biggest story in world football was Liverpool FC? It's been very, very different and very, very... It has been difficult, undoubtedly. Um, you know, Liverpool fans have waited 30 years uh, to celebrate this, you know, sort of league title triumph. It's been like the holy grail. And then for it to finally have been achieved behind closed doors, Liverpool fans will say that didn't take the gloss off it, really. But it must have done, you know, so surely it must have done. Uh, and it made life very, very difficult for us trying to report it. Because, you know, having been to Anfield so many times in recent years to report on so many incredible occasions, I was there the night to beat Barcelona, Four uh, 0 you know, so in that absolutely astonishing occasion, and so much of that night is atmosphere. So much of it is what's happening, you know, off the pitch. Uh, what what creates that, you know, so that atmosphere around the arena? It's, it's it's difficult to put into words, but that's our job. So we have to try and do that. And they're some of the best read pieces because people, you know, sort of love reading about you know some moments of history like that. That's been taken away from us. I mean, football supporters haven't been allowed to access stadia. I didn't go myself uh, to a football match for well over a year. I was watching it, uh, you know, via television. Uh, we allowed, you know, so well, most football clubs allowed one reporter uh, into the ground to try and maintain COVID restrictions. So we'd have our, you know, so our chief writers, Paul Gorst uh, for Liverpool, Phil Kegbride for Everton, would go to the stadium. The rest of us would have to watch remotely. Uh, and I only eventually uh, was admitted into Goodison Park for Everton game against Sheffield United when uh, Everton lost 1-0. That wasn't a great return. Isn't it? <laughs> and then uh, the, follow- the following week, when I think 8,000 were allowed to watch the Wolves game when I got back in again. And it was wonderful to be back in there. But even then again, it was a weird experience with only 8,000 being in there and all being socially distanced. So I'm dearly hoping that things are you know, totally back to normal You know, so during the current season. When Watford fans were allowed in for the match against Cardiff, their booing convinced Scott Duxby to get rid of Ivic and bring on Shishko and how interesting that there is a direct correlation between Liverpool and Everton not winning at home in the last season and the absence of fans. Does that point to the fact that Scouse fans are the best in the world? Uh, It's a very, very convincing argument. I mean, if you look at the fact that Liverpool hadn't lost at Anfield for, I forget exactly the figure, but it was like a best part of yeah, best part of three years, and then suddenly managed to lose was a seven in succession uh, in empty stadia. Uh, that that doesn't go. That that's not a coincidence. Everton last season produced the best away record that the club had had uh, since was eighteen eighty since the Victorian era, basically. And yet at Goodison, they were abysmal. And uh, you know, so traditionally, you know, so Goodison Park is a uh, pit on those, uh, you know, so really big nights. And there's no doubt whatsoever that you know football fans at Goodison and at Anfield influence the outcome of matches. It's all been said before, you know, so you know the, the power, the power of Anfield. I remember Jose Mourinho absolutely, you know, sort of mocking and laughing about that. Uh, I was down at Stamford Bridge when uh, Liverpool drew them in the the first leg of the 2005 Champions League semi-final. I asked Jose, you know, so after the game, was he concerned about the uh, the Anfield atmosphere? And he looked at me like I had two heads, and it was like, you know, 
playing 11 players on the pitch, we're not playing the football fans. I thought, okay, fine. But when he got there that night and you know, he experienced that atmosphere and the players in the dressing room experienced the noise, you know, so outside, I think he realised, you know, so maybe he should have paid a little bit more respect to it. Barcelona the same. And you know, when teams lose matches in that fashion, and it's happened a number of times, you know, so Anfield over the years, it basically creates this self-fulfilling prophecy where teams come to Anfield worried about the atmosphere, you know, especially these greetings that the early Anfield fans started to give supporters, you know, sort of pre-match lining the streets and, you know, sort of greeting coaches with flares and flags and what have you. That all plays a part in their footballers' psychology. Um, so, yeah, no doubt whatsoever that the absence of football fans has hurt Everton, has hurt Liverpool, and hopefully normal service is being resumed when it comes to next yeah, season. Yeah, it'll be interesting. We're talking two days before the Charity Shield, that well-known trophy that Mourinho loves to count, even though it's a meaningless friendly. Oh, the curtain raiser. Uh, but we'll have had 10 weeks of fans being back at elite grounds. God, I hope that the knee issue is resolved and... And that this conversation is not about the racism or the knee or how Jordan Pickford always is good for a mistake once every three games. That's that's not what we need. Uh, brilliant performances in the Euro. I was very impressed with Jordan Pickford. Point to prove. Uh, he's got Dean Henderson breathing down his neck. Tom uh, Nick Pope probably may have started. He's got a great gob, Jordan Pickford. Jordan Pickford has been very, very unfairly maligned uh, in, in recent weeks. And uh, I've made a point of writing about this during the European Championships. Uh, people like Lee Dixon, you know, sort of damning him with faint praise. Um, and people suggesting that, you know, so Jordan Pickford plays well for England, but not for Everton. Nonsense. Jordan Pickford uh, made a couple of clangs at the start of last season, but from January onwards was impeccable. Uh, whether he's finally, you know, got his... His, his mental issues sorted mm-hmm. out because he does have a, or he did, you know, may I say, have a tendency to lose focus during matches. He allowed uh, what was happening off the pitch to distract him sometimes, especially when they played in Newcastle. Um, and I'm hoping that he's got over that. He's one of these goalkeepers that seems to be, he loves being involved all the time. And, you know, the best goalkeepers are the ones that, you know, you don't see for 80 minutes. And then when they're required, make two blinding saves when it's absolutely necessary. Um, you know, for argument's sake, Allison, you know, so across the park, you know, Liverpool just signed a ridiculously long contract. But because because of that, well, I think Jordan picked the second half of last season, you know, so sort of showed that he took that form into the European Championships with England, and it was no surprise to me that he was as uh, he was as good as he was. And I just hope that by the time this is there, like you say, we're talking before the community yeah. shield, that he hasn't made me look soft and he's dropped a couple of clangs at the start well, of the season. Like he started very, very well. Having Robin Olsen there last season was great, but I imagine that Benitez has brought in Begovic because he knows that Begovic is a very, very strong human being. If Everton is the best community club outside of Watford, uh, then having Begovic there... In the squad, I mean, Begovic might play 10 games a season, but from a community perspective and maybe from a quote perspective with you uh, and your team at the Echo, I think he's a brilliant acquisition for nothing. Certainly hope so. I mean, it it was a policy that was very successful last season, bringing in a goalkeeper of experience, international quality, uh, to basically push the number one. There were times when, um, you know, Carlo Ancelotti left out Jordan Pickford and, and, in inverted commas, rested him and um, played Robin Olsen instead. And that seemed to inspire Jordan Pickford to kick on. So for that policy to work, you need to have a goalkeeper 
he's good enough to do that and Asmir Begovic certainly is and as regards what you were just saying um, about you know his ability to you know sort of interact you know, sort with the media his signing was one of the moments of the summer for us uh, because his wife uh, <laughs> Nicole I think her name is is an international dressage rider that's right and um and she actually dressed her horse, Jerry, up in a blue and white livery, blue and white socks, uh, put a scarf around his neck. She put on an Everson kiss and paraded around the ring to Zed Cars, which obviously is a Watford fan, you know, so you'll know all about it. We share, we share uh, the song. Just, That's fine. Exactly. It was just, it was a wonderful moment. And uh, I think there was some PR team, you know, so it must have been thrilled because they didn't need to do anything. Uh, Asmir Begovic's wife did it all for them. So, yeah, that was great. So hopefully he's effective on the pitch as is yeah. uh, him and his family are others. Who was the chap you signed the same day, winger? Uh, well, we signed a couple to Mary Gray, as uh, come from Leicester, yeah. and uh, Andros Townsend, of course. Correct. Um, from Crystal Palace. So, you know, it's um, members of the squad that we would bring qualities that we didn't already have in other words width and pace I mean the squad was sorely lacking in pace and even in just two pre-season friendlies uh, we've seen Townsend you know show penetration and show quality uh, people raise their eyebrows you know because these are players that have been around a little bit and may, maybe flatter to deceive a little bit but you know uh, Benitez can't spend huge sums in the transfer market at the moment so therefore he brought in qualities he knows the squad needed uh, both have looked very, very bright pre-season. Damari Gray actually played number 10 in uh, one of the pre-season games. I did so very effectively. Uh, so both very good signings. And all three, Begovic, Gray and Townsend, have all made an impact uh, in you know, pre-season already. So I can suggest that they could be on for you know, a decent season. That's very good. Uh, Everton, always flattering to deceive. This is a big season. And I've read Michael Cox's book, The Mixer. And the two guys that come out the best are Brendan and Rafa. Because Rafa is a nerd. The amount of video analysis he does and he stands on the side as if he's moving risk soldiers around the board. So are you prepared for a year of Coman and Benita and Martinez are technical, but this is kind of hyper-technical? Absolutely. I mean, uh, I know Rafa very well, obviously, from his time at Liverpool. And uh, I know he's not a a manager that, you know, sort of motivates players with an arm around the shoulder, you know, with, uh, you know, sort of, huge inspirational speeches he's a manager that demands players do exactly what he wants and exactly what you say there he wants them to occupy certain positions in the pitch in certain situations and uh, if they're not doing that well he'll make changes Uh, so he's an extremely controlling manager but he's effective I mean look at how much he was adored by the Newcastle fans in the time he was there Liverpool fans absolutely idolised him bottom line is results I mean, Chelsea was a weird one because he got results. He actually won them a trophy, and yet they still you know, wouldn't take him because of the rivalry that you know, Chelsea had with Liverpool. Uh, will that be the same at Goodison Park? We'll have to wait and see. But I suspect that if he does get results, and if he's the manager that can finally, you know, so sort of long last, land a bit of silverware for Everton, they'll love the guy uh, because you know, we're talking the longest period in Everton Football Club's history now without silverware. Mm-hmm. And uh, the longer that goes on, the more crushing and the more demoralising it becomes for the fan base. And, uh, you know, even if it's a League Cup, you know, the, the one trophy ever that have never landed, that would be so, you know, riotously celebrated. So, yeah, if, if Rafa can somehow do that, it doesn't matter what he's done previously in his career, he will be adored. The Everton-Newcastle game at Goodison Park is in the Christmas New Year fixtures. They'll shift it around. At the moment, it's scheduled for the 28th. And... Everton Liverpool is St Andrew's Day, November thirtieth. So, make sure yeah. you're you're free to go to that one. It's 
quite late in the season, which is quite good, I think. You know, one of the last things in the world Rafa would have needed yeah. was a derby match very early on in the season. And in, not that long ago, I think there was a Goodison derby, which was only the fourth match of the season. Everton won that one 3-0, I'll just uh, throw in there. But uh, if, you know, so Rafa had a derby match very, very early on and things didn't go well, Let's just say, for argument's sake, you know, so Liverpool you know, score first, which isn't beyond the realms of possibility, mm-hmm. uh, given the way recent derbies have gone. Uh, and you know, the Anfield fans suddenly started chanting Rafa Benitez's name. You know, how would that go down with the Amazon fan base? Very, very badly. So at least there's you know, so a long period of time, unless heaven forbid, there's some kind of like mad league cup draw between now and then. Uh, so you know, it gives a, a, a time for Evertonians to get used to the idea of a former Liverpool manager, you know, sort of leading them before that fixture finally comes. And obviously, whatever Rafa says in the build-up to that game and how he conducts himself will be quite significant as well. But yeah, there's no doubt it's going to be quite an intriguing campaign, definitely. And that, that, that Derby match itself will be very intriguing too. Mm, um, and unfortunately, I know you are an Everton fan, uh, born in Walton. Is that blue or red or a mix, Walton? Walton, yeah, oh, very much Everton. I mean, it's uh, a <laughs> Walton Hospital I was born in, which is like literally a goal kick from Goodison. Um, I mean, it's, it's difficult to say, really, because Anfield and Goodison are literally separated you by the, you know, the width of stands. So, you know, it, it's a very, very mixed area. But yeah, Walton, that side of the park, you would say, is Everton. You know, so Anfield, the other side, Stanley Park is, is, you know, is Liverpool. But the city as a whole is mixed. Straight down the middle, there's no... Uh, you know, religious divide. There's you know, so no geographical divide. It is you know, so a, a real mix and a real, you know, a real melting pot. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, so when we're talking about Hillsborough, it's a strange dynamic. You know, so the Everton Liverpool relationship. I mean, make no bones, they hate each other. You know, so as football clubs, but only up to a point. Um, you know, when it comes to you know having a go at the city. Uh, that's when everybody pulls together, you know, sort of scouses together, if you like, which is why they did, you know, sort of very, very much so, you know, sort of over that Hillsborough tragedy, you know, how they have done over instances, you know, so where Tory governments have, you know, sort of tried to, you know, sort of ruin the reputation of the city. If anybody has a go at Liverpool as a city, Emerson and Liverpool's fan base pulls together. I don't think you find that, you know, so as much in, you know, basically any other city uh, in the country. It's it's a curious relationship, it's fair to say. Because Manchester. They've got the Republic of Mancunia and then Man City is East Manchester. Now you've got Salford coming up. Sheffield, definitely yeah. red and blue. Um, Bristol. Yeah. Uh, Bristol is a bit... Well, Bristol's not a football city. But Newcastle yeah. are lucky in that there's one club. Um, yeah. And, of course, Liverpool, there's two. I wonder, in 1985, how significant Heysel was in preventing Everton from getting the kind of fans that Liverpool had got in the 10 years previously because Everton weren't allowed yeah. to play in Europe in that great era and Lineker had to go and there was that great exodus up north, uh, Scotland especially. Um, so it was sad yeah. beyond anything else. Absolutely. I mean, funnily enough, I remember uh, reading once in a Watford programme uh, going back about so 15 or 20 years now, uh, somebody basically saying exactly that, you know, so how Everton were hurt, you know, so irreparably by what happened in 1985 at Heysel. It was good to see that articulated um, because very often it's like the, you know, sort of the tragedy that dare not speak its name, you know, so people, t- you know, trying not to talk about it uh, maybe as much as Hillsborough, you know, because they, they were very, very different, you know, sort of tragedies. And Everton Football Club suffered. No one really realised at the time quite how much they did suffer 
Gary Lineker was a weird one you mentioned there because, you know, so he was actually sold by Howard Kendall, you know, and was allowed to leave. That had nothing to do with the other high school, you know, sort of ban, uh, you know, the European ban. I mean, Howard just thought that Everton were playing too much Route 1 football uh, and were playing too direct and relied too heavily on his pace and wanted to get back to spreading the goals around a little bit. And we actually won the, the league the following campaign, 1987, without Gary Lineker. Personally, I wish we kept hold of him. You know, you can't just lose the best goal scorer of your generation and not suffer. And I think long-term Gary Lineker would have been wonderful for Everson. And he said as much himself. He says that Everson was the greatest team he ever played for. And that includes the Barcelona team that he was sold to in the mid-1980s. But you're absolutely right. We did lose an awful lot of very talented players. You mentioned the Exodus North. We lost Trevor Stephen. We lost Gary Stevens because you know, so they wanted to play European football. A couple of the very, very significant players of that era, you know, so Peter Reid, uh, Kevin Sheedy, were nearing you know, sort of the end of their careers and maybe weren't replaced as effectively as they could have been. Yeah, there's absolutely no doubt that Everson suffered desperately as a result of that ban. I mean, you know, 1986, I mean, you know, it, it really angers me sometimes when you see some of the banners you know, sort of mocking that. You see Starbuck Bucharest banners you know, occasionally uh, on the cop. Uh, because obviously they won the European Cup in 1986 when Everson were banned. And uh, there's no doubt whatsoever that for a, through no fault of their own, uh, Everson suffered. I mean, Everson fans always point out that in 1985, um, in the European Cup Winners' Cup final in Rotterdam, Everson fans behaved impeccably. You know, they were actually playing football with the police in the streets, you know, so before the game, beat Rapid Vienna, and then looking forward to more great European occasions like that. And for a long, long time, that didn't happen. And then obviously, as we mentioned earlier, you know, so Everson slumped in the Premier League era and uh, only had that one European campaign in 1995-96 when Joe Royal won the FA Cup. And that was short-lived. So, yeah, it was a long time before European nights were restored to Goodison Park. In fact, we had to wait for the David Moyes era. And, uh, you know, so a couple of, you know, so, you know, reasonably lengthy campaigns, last 16 of the uh, UEFA Cup uh, under Moyes and Fiorentina beat us. So, yeah, it's, it was a grim, grim time, you know, sort of that, and you know, no doubt whatsoever that Everson suffered and probably didn't, didn't recover as a result of what happened in 1985. And all of this, um, you've said it comes basically out of me head, to paraphrase uh, Nasty from the Ruttles book, Out of Me Head. Uh, right. It is uh, a grand old team to report, available £6 on Kindle, £6 on hardback, and available now in paperback. If you did hear several pings... They weren't pings for you to self-isolate and thus miss going into the office. They were <laughs> WhatsApp pings. Which have now been turned off, so <laughs> but, but to go. I was going to say, you're the sports editor of the Liverpool Echo. You ping all you want to. This lady's not for pinging. No, that's the wrong thing to say. Completely the wrong thing to say. Although there is a great piece in The Guardian about how Thatcherism is still at work. Does um, the Iron... Twat feature in your book, A Grand Old Team to Report, which is about Everton Football Club, uh, but you can't divorce uh, Everton from the politics because they are the people's club. They are, yes, and you know, it's a simple answer, no, she doesn't, but obviously that era um, in the 1980s um, when Merseyside was in a bad place, uh, apart from the football, football gave us one thing to celebrate, one reason to celebrate, when unemployment was you know, so higher in the city than anywhere else uh, in the country. Um, that figures quite prominently because the book starts, you know, so literally, you know, so my journey uh, from becoming a football fan, you know, so basically wanting to become uh, a football, that was never going to happen if anybody has seen me play. Uh, but then, you know, the next best thing is writing about football. I always wanted to write about Everson Football Club. 
And it's following Everton as a supporter uh, in the 70s, in those wonderful times in the 80s. And I'm getting my first job in journalism in uh, 1984, my, my weekly newspaper, uh, and then moving on to the Daily Post and the Liverpool Echo. Uh, and then, you know, working very, very closely with a succession of managers up until, until you know, very, very recently. And it's also an indication of how journalism has changed absolutely dramatically uh, since that era. I mean, when I first started, it was an era when I'd go down to the training ground, Belfield as was, every single morning. I'd have a cup of tea and a bit of toast with the manager at the time. We'd discuss what was in the morning papers. Uh, we'd, you know, sort of produce a report every single day. Managers were accessible. Managers would pick up their phone whenever you called them. Uh, and you'd be allowed to go back into the training ground at lunchtimes and ask players if they wanted to be interviewed. They were treated like grown-ups. And some would, some wouldn't. I mean, Andre Konchalskis was always reluctant, largely because his English wasn't yeah, his English particularly was terrible, good. Yeah. yeah, Duncan Ferguson wouldn't for different reasons. Uh, Andy, Hinch, Andy Hinchcliffe, who I got on brilliantly with, but always preferred not to. But lots of other players, you know, so certainly did. So it, it was a very, very open uh, and informal era, certainly for a weekly newspaper reporter. Uh, but that changed, you know, so as time progressed in the Sky era when demands on football clubs became, became ever more pressing and you know demands for interviews became more and more prevalent so it's, it's largely you know so how how my life has changed how football journalism has changed and hopefully sprinkled with lots of humor and lots of anecdotes along the way and it seems to be pretty well received by uh, you know so the majority of people that bought it you know so hopefully the paperback version will do equally as well and that goes onto the shelves of the football library along with books by simon hughes and tony evans and jim keoghan the excellent book highs lows and Bakayoko's, uh, which yeah. tells about that time. Uh, but on happier days, Simon Hart wrote a book in a very tiny font about Everton in the 80s, and Brian Viner's got Looking for the Toffees, uh, which I love. Yeah. But perhaps yeah. the most interesting tale is Alan Petullo, who goes yeah. in search of Big Dunk. I, yeah. I don't know if you found him. Big Dunk is a mystery wrapped in an enigma, wrapped inside a, a suit at the moment. Yeah. Has... Um, Benitez has kept him on, hasn't he? He's still at the club. Absolutely, yeah, I mean, he needed to. Um, you know, so Duncan Ferguson's caretaker management role uh, last season was, uh, well, you know, uh, yeah, the one season before. before that he was appointed was absolutely, you know, sort of inspirational. And, you know, we have this argument all the time about, you know, so is Duncan Ferguson considered an Emerson legend or not? And it's a very subjective thing. Uh, when you're as old as I am and you're seeing, you know, some players win league titles and European trophies, uh, and your know, FA Cups, maybe you're a little bit more demanding in what you expect from legends. But there was no doubt that you know, so younger supporters believe that Duncan Ferguson is an Everton legend, and who am I to, to quibble mm-hmm. with them? Uh, so you know, he's very, very important part of the backroom staff. And you know, initially there was a part, where, a time when he, he was held back from having as much influence as he would have liked uh, by a succession, succession of coaches. Carlo Ancelotti actually recognised, um, you know, so how important he could be. Uh, promoted him and had him you know, working very, very closely with his brother, David Ancelotti, uh, and very, very successfully too. And it seems like Rafa Benitez you know, has done that also. You can be a little bit cynical maybe and say that you know it, it's a good way of making sure that you know, so the Everton fans embrace him because you know, it was a very unpopular appointment at the time. But you know, when you've got an Everton you know, sort of icon working alongside you, that must help you know, sort of win a few people on board. Yeah. But equally, Duncan Ferguson is very good at his job. He's a very, very good coach. Um, so, you know, so I think it made absolutely perfect sense to keep him on. And of course, uh, talking of Rafa, Rory Smith co-authored a book which came out just after the Champions League success. 
And Benitez has written quite a lot or had ghosted quite a lot of work. So hopefully Rafa will give very good copy to the Liverpool Echo. Have you run an exclusive with him yet? Or are you, I guess by mid-October there will be. But as we're talking pre-season, have you had uh, much copy from him? We've not had a proper sit down at one-to-one yet. Um, I mean, I, I go back a long way with Rafa. I mean, uh, still have his number from his time when he was a uh, Liverpool manager. And he's one of those uh, managers that does get back to you immediately and does give you, you know, sort of good information. Uh, and, and he always has done that. He's always worked very, very well with the media. But uh, we're still in that curious, you know, sort of COVID time, even though we're allowed to go back into a pub now and stand at a bar and uh, uh, wearing face masks is now a matter of choice uh, in shops rather than a legal requirement. Um, it's football clubs are still operating in a very, very cautious, very, very sensible manner. Uh, so interviews are still conducted via Zoom, uh, which is you know, make, makes life difficult. We're still not allowed back into training grounds or into football grounds. So, uh, when we're speaking right now, you know, sort of beginning of August, uh, that's still the case. Uh, but I'm pretty sure that you know when we are allowed uh, back into football training grounds again, Rafa will be as good with us as he always has been. I know he was excellent with the uh, the media up in Newcastle. I speak to some of my colleagues who've only got very very good things to say about him, and I'm sure he will be exactly the same again. Um, you know, so with the Liverpool Echo as he was previously. 